Have you ever been in, in a crowd of people and they were speaking English and yet you didn't understand anything they were talking about? I mean, we've all been there. It's like, okay, I think I understand the words they're saying, but I have no clue what they're saying. I, I, we have a, a really cool neighbor here. Her name's Margie, and uh, she's 92 years old. She's an amazing lady. And I go over and talk to her once in a while, and almost every time that I go over and talk to her, something like this is said from her. She'll say, you know, I came along too late for computers. I don't have a computer. I don't understand computers. And then she'll talk about how her grandson will help her with anything computer or technical related. And that got me thinking, what if, what if you didn't get in on the loop of computers over these last 20 or 25 years you know, of their development? There'd be a whole language that is English, but it has completely, you know, the words have completely different meanings uh, than, than what you would be used to. For example, how about a gig? A gig, you know what a gig is? If you've hung around computers, you know what that is. But, you know, when I hear that word, I instantly go back to my childhood days back in Indiana, in central Indiana, when me and Mark Rail would get a stick with a sharp point on the end of it, and we'd go into the swamps, and we'd gig frogs. You know, get, and take them home and fry up their legs, and, and that was a lot of fun. So when I hear gig, I don't, I don't necessarily think about the computer thing. Or how about RAM? We know what a RAM is in a computer, but I got to tell you, as soon as I hear that word, for whatever reason, my mind goes to the story of Abraham. When God asked him to sacrifice his son, Isaac, and he was about to do it, he put him on the altar, he had his knife drawn, if you remember this, and God spoke from heaven when he saw that Abraham was going to follow through, and he said, stop. And Abraham looked up, and there in the thicket, in, in, in the bushes, was a ram that God had trapped there so that Abraham could then sacrifice that ram and, instead of Isaac. And, and it was a beautiful thing. But, you know, I think of a sheep, <laughs> like, you know, a male sheep. But anyway, you could go through and you could talk about megabytes and laptops and desktops and notebooks and all kinds of things. We think we know what those words mean, but if we've been out of the loop of computers, we don't have a clue what they really mean. Language changes. Christians do the same thing. We have a whole litany of, of words that we use that within the community of faith, those of us who've been in the Word of God and, 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 and around people who love Jesus for a long time, we know exactly what these words mean. Words like lost, found, redeemed, uh, sanctified, justified, anointed. You know, And even these couple words that Jesus uses here in John 3.16 uh, will not perish what does that mean to perish? I, we, we intuitively know that perishing doesn't sound good. I'm not interested. But what, what does that really mean in a theological sense in terms of our relationship with God? Uh, won't perish, but we'll have eternal life. Again, sounds like something I'd be interested in, right? Eternal life. That sounds great. But what does that really mean to, uh, to, to experience eternal life? So I, I want to talk about salvation today and why it's so important. And, and specifically, I want to focus in on these two, two questions. Number one, why do I need to be saved? Why is that a big deal? Why should that even matter to me? And second, if I become convinced that it is important and that I need it and that I want it, how does it happen? First, let's, let's focus in on that first question. Why do I need to be saved? Genesis chapter 2, verses 16 and 17. We're going back to the very beginning of the Bible. And here it says that the Lord God commanded the man, you may eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. For when you eat of it, 
you will surely die. He only gave them one command. A tremendous freedom. Adam and Eve are living in paradise. They're walking and talking with God. You know, as you read through Genesis 2 and 3, you see that they, they live in this beautiful place. Um, there, there's no bad weather. There's no cold because they're naked and they don't even feel shame. So so obviously it's, it's a nice, beautiful climate. Um, they have freedom to roam and, and care for the garden and, and uh, you know, anywhere that they please. And God just gives them this one command. Do not eat from this one fruit from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. It's, it's important for us to understand God had to Im- implement that one command because he wants to build a relationship with humankind. You can't have relationship, or I should say the basis of any relationship is trust. And so in order to facilitate uh, trust, God had to give them something to trust him with. And what he essentially said was, that that tree of the knowledge of good and evil, that's bad. You don't need that. You don't want that. Trust me on that. Stay away from that. And so by obeying that one command, they could could demonstrate their trust, and they had this wonderful relationship with God. But we know the story, right? We know what happened. We know that the enemy, the devil, appeared to them as a serpent. He was cunning. He led them astray. He caused them to think God was holding out on them. And uh, he spoke to them in a way that made them desire this this uh, this fruit. And, and they, they ate it. And it brought something into the world. Uh, as a matter of fact, God says it here in, in this passage we just read uh, in verse 16 or 17, for when you eat of it, you will surely die. Now we know in hindsight, as we go on through the scripture, that God was speaking of two kinds of death. He was speaking of physical death. Sin, or disobedience to God, brought physical death into the world, but it also brought spiritual death into the world. You need to understand that you are created in the image of God. Now, we could talk about all the ramifications of what that means all day long, because there's so much to that. But essentially, for for our purposes here, you need to understand God is a triune being. He's Father, He's Son, and He's Holy Spirit. Okay, we see that all the way through Scripture. You're a triune being as well. You are a spirit, you are you have a soul, and you live in a body. Matter of fact, it's very important for you to understand and think in those terms. You are a spirit. You're a spirit being. God made you different than than dogs and fish and, and birds. Dogs and fish and birds are they, they, they may have a spirit of life, but they, they're not spirit beings in the same way that we are. God breathed man into existence, and he became a living soul, the, the, uh, the Bible says. Spirit is what relates with spirit. All the way through the Bible, God is spirit, and he created us to have a relationship with him. So we are spirit. We have a soul. Your soul is your personality. It's your mind, your will, your emotions. It's the it's what makes you uniquely you and different from anyone else who's ever lived on this planet. It's your desires and your dreams and all those things that just make you uniquely you. And then, of course, you live in a body. And, and in the same way that God, as we see him in Scripture, has these conversations with himself like, Come now, let us reason together. Though their sin be as scarlet, they will be as white as snow. Or... Let us make man in our image and in our likeness. That's the Godhead kind of having a conversation with himself. We do that too. We do that too, don't we? I know many times when I'll be discouraged or down or struggling, I'll talk to myself. I'll say, now Brad, come on. You got to get over that. You can't let that get you down. You can't let those circumstances keep you down. And you kind of 
give yourself a pep talk and, and those kind of things? Or, or how many times have I done this in marriage? And guys, I know that you're going to be able to relate with this. How many times have you said to yourself, just say you're sorry. Just tell her you're sorry, and it'll be it'll all be better. You know, if you've ever, if you've been married for any length of time, you know you've had to say that a lot of times, and and it's true. Uh, it, it always it always helps. You know what though? Here's what I want you to get: fish, birds, cats, dogs, whatever animal you want to name, other creatures that are living. They don't do that. They don't have that self-awareness. They don't have conversations with themselves. Only human beings do that because we're uniquely made in God's image as spirit beings to have a relationship with God. In 1 Thessalonians 5.23, Paul says, May God himself, the God of peace, sanctify you through and through. I mean, just all the way through. May your whole spirit, soul, and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. So God there's or Paul there breaks it down. Our whole being is spirit, soul, and body. Now, going back to the garden, okay? Before sin, before Adam and Eve fell, that was what we call the fall, the first sin. They were spirit, they had a soul, and they lived in a body. Their spirit was alive. It was wide awake, okay? Now and just just hang with me here and you'll you'll understand what I'm saying. They had an unbroken relationship with God. As you read through those pages in, in Genesis 2, chapter 2 and 3, you see that God would visit them every day. and even mentions in the cool of the day. Maybe that was in the afternoon or something or the morning. But he would meet with them and they would share. And because their spirit was alive and well and there was no sin uh, in the world, they had this beautiful unbroken relationship. They had a soul. They each had their own personality. And they lived in the body. The body was in its proper perspective. The body was there to allow them to enjoy creation and taste food and see the beauty and smell the smells and all those things that our senses allow us to do. But then, after sin, after they disobeyed God, the first thing we see is they run and hide. They run and hide in the bushes and they're, they're afraid of God. And when he shows up, he's like, where are you? Did you eat from the tree that I told you not to eat from? And of course, God already knows that they did. He's just fleshing this thing out and leading up to to the uh, the consequences that he's going to have to dish out for sin. But see, the fact is, what happened when they disobeyed God? Remember how he said, you will surely die? And we talked about that that brought physical death and spiritual death into the world. Well, when they disobeyed God, it did bring physical death. And that was going to show up. They were eventually going to die. Matter of fact, if you read on through Genesis chapter 4 and into 5, that's one of the big emphasis that the text makes because it goes through all these different people and it says they, leave, they lived this many years and then they died. They lived this many years and then they died and then they died and then they died. That just shows up again and again that sin brought death into the world. But specifically here, the point that we need to understand is that their spirit died. There was shame that came into their life. There was no shame before that. There was no guilt. They, they, there was no need to hide in the bushes because their spirit was alive and they, were, they had obeyed God and so they had a relationship. But when they disobeyed, their spirit, the spiritual part of who they were, died. And when your spirit dies, you can't have a relationship with God. And the other thing that happens here is that the flesh takes over. Now, all of a sudden, instead of being primarily a spirit being with a soul living in a body, we became fleshly beings. We became driven by our sin nature. Our flesh is like that part of us that wants and needs and craves, and I want this, and what about me? And it's that whole selfishness thing that comes into play through the flesh. And so they become 
people who are driven by their flesh, their soul is kind of trapped, a slave to the flesh, and their spirit is dead, being drugged around in the, in the back. Listen to what Jesus says then in John chapter 3, verse 3. Remember, we're talking about why we need to be saved. Jesus here is having a conversation with a Pharisee named Nicodemus, and he says, I tell you the truth, no one can see the kingdom of God unless he is born again. That's powerful. You can't see the kingdom of God. You can't see God's world. You can't see God's truth, who he is, uh, what he's about, his holiness, his truth, his righteousness. You can't perceive what it, of, of what it means to know God or walk with God or, or, or experience his grace. I mean, all of that stuff is wrapped up in this statement. You can't see or understand the kingdom of God or what it means to be part of his family unless you're born again. Why would we need to be born again? Jesus is hearkening all the way back to Genesis chapter 2 and 3 when Adam and Eve experienced that death, that death that came into the world through that spiritual death, through disobedience. So unless you receive a fresh injection from God, from God's spirit, because literally when Jesus said, unless you're born again, he meant born from above or born from God's spirit. Unless we receive a, a fresh just injection of life from God's spirit, we remain in this condition where our body or our flesh is ruling and our, our, our uh, soul is, is a slave to that and our spirit is dead and we can't even relate with God. So friends, that's why we need to be saved. That's why we need to be saved because we're spiritually dead. Romans 3.23 says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And Romans 6.23 says the wages or the result or the, 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 the payment of sin is death. And when Paul says death there, he means both kinds, that physical death and primarily here, though, he means the phys or the spiritual death. We're, we're cut off from God. So we need a Savior. We need God to do something to, to regenerate us, to bring that spiritual part of us back to life so that we can know him, walk with him, talk with him, know his grace, and perceive and see his kingdom and be part of it. All right, so that's the first question. Why do we need to be saved? I hope that makes sense to you. If now you're convinced and you think, yeah, I want to be saved. I mean, I definitely, I want, I don't, I don't want to be spiritually dead. I want to know God and walk with him and, and, and know his presence in my life. How do I do that? How can I become saved? I want to explain this. There's, a, there's so many ways we could approach this because the Bible's filled with so much good teaching on salvation. But essentially, I think we can boil it down to these six words that I'm going to share with you. And all six of these words really reflect and point to one experience. Let's look at that first word, call. C-A-L-L, -L, call. Every single Christian can recall a time or remember a time when God's Spirit tugged on their heart. You can remember a time when the gospel, the good news about Jesus and what he did for you on the cross and why you needed that. And, you know, you came to a realization that you were dead spiritually and that, that Jesus took your place and, and, and you felt the tug of God's spirit. There was a calling to come and surrender to Christ. We can all remember that. That's important. That's part of this experience of how we become saved. We, we feel the call and the tug of God's spirit. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 9. It says, God who has called you... Uh, into fellowship with his son, Jesus Christ, our Lord, is faithful. It's beautiful. So, so the first thing that is part of this process is that we feel the call of God, the tug of God on our, on our heart. Word number two, repent. 
Repentance is an awesome word. Acts chapter 3, verse 19. Peter's preaching to a group of people here, and he declares, he says, Repent then and turn to God, so that your sins may be wiped out, and times of refreshing may come from the Lord. That, that's awesome. Peter, Peter says, listen, repent and turn to God, and times of refreshing will come into your life. Now, the word repent means to do a 180. To turn around. If, if you could see me and I was facing one direction, I would turn around, just do a, an about face. That's what repentance means. Change your heart, change your mind. Come to understand that the direction you're going is a bad direction, the wrong direction, and you do an about face and you change your, your heart and your mind and you give God the steering wheel and say, it's not about me anymore. It's about you. Um, and Peter says that when we do this, this time of refreshing, I love it. I'm a word nerd, okay? I love the, to, to really think about the meaning of words. We are refreshed. We were once fresh. We've lost our freshness, and this injection of God's new life and grace comes into our life when we repent, turn away from our old life, turn to Him, and we are refreshed. We're made fresh again. That's another way of saying that life of God comes into us, and we reconnect with Him in relationship. It's awesome. So there's a call, and then there's, in response to that call, there's a sense of repentance, Repentance and changing and, and, and turning to God. Words number three and four, confess and believe. Two awesome words, two great biblical words that Paul puts together here in this one passage, Romans chapter 10, verses 9 and 10. Paul says, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For it is with your heart that you believe, and you are justified. And it is with your mouth that you confess, and you are saved. Okay, so Paul uses two words there, confess and believe. Let's break those down. Let's talk about confess first. Confess means to agree with God. Specifically, we agree with God in two areas. We agree with God in terms of what he says about us, and we agree with God about what he says about himself and his son Jesus. God declares that he loves us and that we are loved. We are God's creation, but we're sinners and we've fallen short and we need a savior. So when we confess, we're acknowledging that. Secondly, he declares that he is God. He is perfect. He is holy. He's the one that, that, that we've fallen short of. And he declares that Jesus is his son and that he is the perfect Savior, he is the perfect God-man who put on flesh, lived among us, lived the perfect life, shed his blood for our sin, was buried, and rose from the dead. And when we confess that, we say, yes, Jesus is Lord, he is King, he is God's Son, and I need him. That's huge. That God says that, that, that brings about this change in our life when we confess those things. Secondly, then he talks about believing. Now the word for believe there is pistuo. It's an awesome word. Uh, it means more than just to believe in your head. You know, if, if, if you could see me, I might have, a, like, say we have a stool here. And I could stand beside it and I could say, now, I believe that this stool will hold my weight. And you might even accept that. You might say, okay, sure, I believe that Brad believes that. But that's not pistuo yet. It's pistuo when I actually sit on the stool and lift my legs off the ground. Now... I believe it, right? It's, it's, it's self-evident that I believe it because I have given myself to it. To believe in the sense that Paul's talking about here means to completely entrust yourself to 
something, the thing that you say you're putting your trust in. To, to believe in Jesus means to put all the eggs of your hope and your trust and, 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 and any prayer that you have for, for, for future uh, joy or meaning in your life in the basket of Jesus. That's what that means. It's awesome. So, so, so far, the Bible says that there's a calling. There's a response to that with repentance and a confession that happens. We acknowledge who we are and who God is, and we believe, we entrust ourselves, we give ourselves wholeheartedly to Jesus as our Savior. Number five, word number five is receive. I love this one because it's so personal. Uh, it has just a, a personal sense to it that we're actually opening up our life and receiving Jesus as our Savior and as our Lord. John chapter 1 verses 11 and 12 says that he, that's a reference to Christ, Christ came to that which was his own, but his own uh, did not receive him. Yet to all who who uh, did receive him, to those who believed in him, or in his name, there's that word believed again, he gave the right to become children of God. So there has to be this moment where we acknowledge and we see who Christ is and we've believed in him, uh, we've repented of our sin, but we open up our heart and we receive him. Come into my life. Come in and be my Lord. Come in and be my God. It's like, it's like there's just this opening and this invitation for God to come in. Word number six is faith. And it's, it's really appropriate for this to be the last one because faith is a really close cousin to belief. The word for, for belief, the Greek word is pistuo. The Greek word for faith is, is pistis. Uh, they, they, they are very close cousins. But faith, the thing that kind of sets it apart is faith is always described in action terms. You know, you're, you're exercising faith when you recognize that call from God. It's, 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 it's always kind of a description of, of what you're doing at the moment. If you're repenting, you're doing that by faith. Faith is what sets that repentance into motion. When you choose to confess with your mouth and say, speak, Jesus is Lord, I'm a sinner, I need Christ. When you choose to lift your legs off the floor when you're sitting on that stool and say, I believe, you know, that's, that's a faith action. When you choose to open up and say, I receive you, Jesus, it's by faith that we do that, which a good way to think of faith is just belief in action. Ephesians chapter 2 verses 8 and 9, Paul says this about faith, for it is by grace, that is God's unmerited, undeserved favor and blessing and forgiveness, it's by grace that you have been saved, and this through faith. See, it's, you're saved when you put that belief in action, when you, when you choose to use faith to, to turn to God and to open up your life. Uh, and, and let him be your king. And this is not from yourselves. It is a gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. You will not stand before God on Judgment Day and say, look what I did. You know, that just is not going to be the attitude. We will all fall to our knees in grateful, humble appreciation and awe and thank God for his grace because it, we, none of us deserve it. That's that by definition, grace is undeserved favor. It's awesome. Well, friends, there's those six words. There's a calling, a, a, a repentance, confession, belief, receiving of Jesus, and then an engagement of, of a life of faith through which we follow and trust and live out our, our life. But you can summarize all six of those words into one experience. That one experience is surrender. 
That's really what it means to become a Christian. To quit playing games, quit trying to rationalize, quit trying to come up with why you think you're a good enough person or why that why that behavior wasn't so bad or whatever, you know, all the games that we play. To come to the end of that, that rope, so to speak, fall to your knees, lift your hands and say, God, I surrender. I surrender to you. Lord Jesus, you are king. You are God. I need you. Come into my life. And really, that's the attitude that we're called to live with the rest of our days, to be humble on our knees and have an attitude of surrender toward him uh, all of our life. So I pray that you know that you've done that. I pray that you can look back and say, I know when I felt that calling and I changed my heart and I gave my heart to Jesus and I surrendered to him. If you haven't done that, know that you can contact me at pastorbrad at aol.com anytime and I'd love to help you uh, take those steps and uh, know that you know that you know that you've done it. as a matter of fact, I'm going to ask you to bow your head right now and, and pray with me. And we'll just, uh, we'll just either reaffirm our love for Jesus or we'll ask him to come into our heart for the first time. Okay, let's do that together. Let's pray. Father, it is so evident, it is so clear that you're an awesome God. You spoke the universe into existence. You put human beings in a paradise all for the purpose of relationship. You you created us to know you and love you. We confess we've blown it. From Adam all the way through to us, each one of us, we've fallen short. Um, we need you. We need your grace. We need your love. And we're so glad that you've, you so freely offer it. You love the world so much that you gave your only son, and it's Jesus. And he lived that perfect life, and he shed his blood, the blood that should have been ours. But he shed his freely. It was perfect blood that appeased all of your standards of righteousness, and we can put our faith in him. We can trust him. God, we do. We, we turn away from our, our old life. We feel your spirit calling us. We turn away from the old our old life, and we say yes to you. We confess and acknowledge you are all that you say you are, and we are in need of you. We believe in you, Lord. We, we give you our life. We receive you into our, our heart, and we, we choose to live a life of faith. Thank you so much for that. And uh, we know that we need you even after we say amen to just guide us. But we do pray all these things with a thankful heart in the name of Jesus. Amen.